October 1941. Infantryman of the 20th Panzer Division, commanded by General Major Wilhelm Ritter von Thoma, part of Field Marshal Fedor von Bock's Army Group Center, slogged across sodden fields beside the remnants of the road from Smolensk toward Moscow. There was no sense for men on foot to walk on the road itself. Its gravel top had been destroyed, first chewed up by columns of tracked and half-tracked vehicles, then reduced to mud by repeated freeze-thaw rain cycles. The men paused, peering through the relentless rain at where the enemy retreated ahead of them, supposedly. There was no way to see anything more than even a hundred meters ahead. Then the reason for the pause became clear. It was the only thing to be clear that day. The officers' staff cars and the other vehicles carrying critical supplies were stuck. They were down to their fenders in thick, sucking mud. The bottoms of the frames were swimming in it. After dozens of men failed to free the vehicle by pushing or pulling on it, even trying to lever the wheels out of the mud with long boards, they hitched a team of horses to the front of the vehicles. Eventually, they depended on teams of horses to haul everything, even their field guns, and were moving only a short distance during the day. This was a far cry from their sweeping advances of 50 to as many as 80 kilometers or 50 miles a day during the opening weeks of Operation Barbarossa in the clear, sunny summer. In mid-October, Russia's notorious Rasputitsa, the season of no roads, began. In Russia, Ukraine, and other countries of Eastern Europe, the Rasputitsa comes twice every year, in the spring and fall. Freeze-thaw cycles and heavy rains turn farm fields into oceans of mud more than a meter deep, and roads into vague ruts. In fall 1941, Russia's season of mud was more severe than in any other period during World War I or World War II, according to Fighting in Hell, a collection of accounts written by German senior officers under the auspices of the United States Army after the war. The Rasputitsa stopped the German armies on their advance toward Moscow for weeks, and they could only resume their attack what they hoped and planned would be their final attack on the Soviet capital, when the temperature dropped low enough, long enough, to freeze the ground. This would allow the panzers, armored cars, self-propelled guns, and other heavy equipment to move again. But that solution brought its own challenges, which we'll see soon. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. Last episode, we looked at the war in the East following the Battle of Smolensk from August to September 1941. The Battle of Smolensk was a huge loss for the Soviets. It destroyed entire armies 
and the Germans took hundreds of thousands of prisoners. After that, German Führer Hitler ordered the panzer groups of Army Group Center sent north to join the attack on Leningrad and south to help take Kiev and the rest of Ukraine. That southern campaign was another series of stunning victories for the Germans. Kiev fell by mid-September, Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, by the end of October. The Germans occupied the Donbass and were ready to move on Rostov, the Russian city at the mouth of the Don River into the Sea of Azov. The Soviets suffered over 700,000 casualties, men killed, wounded, or captured. In the north, the Germans, well, Hitler, changed their strategy yet again. After surrounding Leningrad in September, Hitler decided to let it starve rather than conquer it with urban warfare because, well, that's extremely expensive in terms of casualties. And so the panzers were redirected again to join the attack on Moscow, the capital. This would be called Operation Typhoon. I'm going to quote from the words of Dr. David Stahel in Operation Typhoon, Hitler's March on Moscow, a richly researched, groundbreaking book about the Eastern Front published in 2013. Quote, Operation Typhoon could not be just another extension of the German Front netting another bag of Soviet prisoners. The operation had to create the conditions for a definitive victory in the East, and accordingly, the OKH, Army High Command, concentrated everything it could spare for one vast final offensive. End quote. Field Marshal Fedor von Bock, commander of Army Group Center, assembled the largest force the Wehrmacht had brought together yet. The 2nd, 4th, and 9th Infantry Armies, three panzer groups, including Guderian's 2nd, which returned to the center after its success in Kiev, and Hoth's third and Hopner's fourth panzer groups, returning from the northern operations around Leningrad. In total, close to 2 million men, 14 panzer divisions, 8 motorized divisions, more than 1,000 tanks, and 14,000 artillery pieces. These units were supported by Luftflotte II, with 1,390 combat aircraft, fighters and bombers. However, by this point, the Luftwaffe was suffering. Since the start of Barbarossa in June 1941, the Luftwaffe had lost 1,603 aircraft in the east, and another 1,028 had been damaged. So, while the plans said that Luftflotte II had some 1,400 planes... In reality, 
only 549 were serviceable. Of those, 158 were medium and dive bombers, and 172 were fighters, the rest being transport and other miscellaneous aircraft. While the Germans were concentrating their forces in a ring around Moscow, the Soviets weren't wasting time. Three fronts, which are army groups, groups of entire armies, three of them stood between the Germans and the capital. This represented 40% of the Red Army's total forces at the time. Against the 2 million Germans were 1,250,000 men, 7,600 guns and mortars against the 14,000 German field guns, 990 tanks against 1,000 panzers, and 667 working combat aircraft. These Soviet forces were a mixture of veteran units who had been fighting almost continuously since June, plus new units that were minimally trained and equipped, and people's volunteer divisions, local civilian militias. According to David Glantz in Operation Barbarossa, quote, most rifle divisions were at half strength, five to 7,000 men, and many lacked their necessary artillery and machine guns. The 193,000 replacements the three fronts received to make up for previous losses fell far short of requirements. Only 45 of Kona's 479 tanks were new models, and all three fronts had severe shortages in trained officers, modern aircraft, and effective anti-aircraft and anti-tank weapons. End quote. Clearly, the Soviets were significantly outnumbered, but they were defending, not attacking. And the circumstances on the ground were changing all the time. To start with, the German forces were also reduced. The Panzer groups were down to as low as 20% of the numbers of tanks that they had started with in June. While their plans showed close to a thousand tanks ready, reality was a lot different. The three panzer groups poised for Operation Typhoon had lost more than 1,400 tanks since the beginning of the campaign. Destroyed by enemy action or, probably more frequently, by the uncompromising terrain and climate. And let's not forget, the Germans were a thousand miles from their supply sources, while their opponents were on home soil. So, at the end of September, the three main panzer groups could bring 786 fully operational tanks to the coming battles. It's still an awe-inspiring number, but not the 990 planned for. General Heinz Guderian, commander of Panzer Group 2, wrote that his forces were very short on fuel, as were all the German forces, and they were also short of everything else. Ammunition, food, spare parts, replacement equipment, and replacement soldiers. Quote, At the start of October 1941, Germany's war against the Soviet Union had been in progress for more than three months. They were by far the bloodiest three months of Hitler's war to date, with the 185,000 Germans dead, and many times that number of Soviet soldiers killed. 
End quote. From David Sahel's Operation Typhoon, Hitler's March on Moscow. Now, I want to bring some perspective here. In the summer and autumn of 1941, the Germans were also fighting in North Africa. Operation Battleaxe was a major British campaign to drive Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps out of Egypt, across Libya, and relieve the besieged defenders of Tobruk. The British sent 25,000 men, fewer than 200 tanks, and about 200 combat aircraft. Combined German and Italian strength there was two regiments, 107 tanks with cannons, and just over 200 combat aircraft. In short, one-fifth of the combined four million men and thousands of tanks involved in the battle for Moscow. So that's the difference in scale for the war in the East. Operation Typhoon was the name given to the Germans' final attempt to take Moscow in the fall of 1941. It was set to start on October 2nd. Of course, hurrying Heinz Guderian had to be the first to go, and his unit started pushing northeast from his salient in the south two days earlier. See map Mark 20, which from the U.S. Army, um, on the website or in the show notes to get an idea of what this is. So, on September 29th, Guderian's 47th and 24th Motorized Corps hit the Bryansk front first. This formation on paper consisted of two armies, the 13th and 50th. On paper, each had eight rifle divisions, three cavalry divisions, and one tank division. But by the end of September 1941, all these units had been badly degraded and were probably down to less than half strength. The commander of the Bryansk Front, General Andrei Yaromenko, ordered his forces to fall back in the face of Guderian's attack, and by the end of the day, September 30th, the Panzers had advanced 15 to 20 kilometers. That's a lot in terms of a, a military advance in one day. The next day, October 1st, the Soviets tried a counterattack, but it failed. As usual, because of uncoordinated operations and the lack of armor and air support. By the end of that day, the 47th Motorized Corps the Germans, had captured the town of Sebsk, more or less halfway between Kursk and Bryansk itself, while the 24th Motorized Corps had penetrated 80 kilometers or 50 miles northeast on the highway toward the important city of Orel, also known as Oriel. On October 2nd, the main show started, as Field Marshal Bach's main force launched the drive eastward from the east of Smolensk straight on toward Moscow. The first objective, the city of Vyazma. Once again, they were taking the same road that Napoleon had more than a century earlier. Just before the attack began, Hitler issued a pep talk to the Wehrmacht. Quote, Today begins the last great decisive battle of this year. In it, we will destroy the enemy, and in so doing, England, the instigator of this whole war. We are thus lifting Germany and Europe from the danger that has hovered over the continent ever since the times of the Huns and later the Mongol invasion. 
End quote. So there he is again, justifying his brutal invasion of the USSR by othering Russians as aliens. Remind you of anyone today? Back to the story. Operation Typhoon echoed the beginning of Operation Barbarossa four months earlier. It started with an artillery barrage and a heavy smoke screen all along the front at first light. Then the panzers leapt forward. I'd like to read to you from a letter home from a German infantryman, quoted again in Dr. Stahl's Operation Typhoon. Quote, O600, I jump on top of a dugout. There are the tanks! Giants rolling slowly toward the enemy, and the planes, one squadron after the other, unloading their bombs across the way. Army Group Center has launched its attack. End quote. Another man from the 1st Division wrote of a, quote, river of troops and vehicles flooding eastwards, end quote. And the results were an, also an echo of that day in June. By the end of the day, Haas' 3rd Panzer Group had advanced 5 to 10 kilometers, or 3 to 6 miles. While a little farther south, Hopner's 4th Panzer Group made 40 kilometers, or 24 miles. All along the front, the Soviets tried to resist, even to counterattack. But as in June, they were too slow. By the time their first of their units were in the positions ordered, the Panzers had already swept past. To the Stavka, the Soviet military high command, the greatest threat was from the south, that is, from Kharkiv, Kursk, and Orel, Guderian's second panzer group, in other words. Stavka sent the 49th Army by rail to protect this direction and then ordered the still-forming 1st Guards Rifle Corps under Major General Lelyushenko plus an air group to, quote, liquidate enemy forces moving through Sevs toward Orel. Completely unrealistic. By the next day, hurrying Hines was approaching Orel, having made 200 kilometers or 120 miles in three days. This is unheard of. Ahead of the panzers went rumors of hundreds of tanks coming up the highway. That day, the whole 6th Company of the 4th Panzer Division drove into the city, secured the bridges, and the main train station. That's right. All the tanks of the 6th Company, commanded by Oberleutnant Arthur Wolschlager, seized the town without meeting any resistance. All four of them. Four. Four tanks. Oberleutnant Wolschlager later wrote, Quote, when the citizens of Orel saw us, they fled into the buildings and side streets, white as ghosts. End quote. The four tanks then waited for the rest of the division to catch up. Later, Hurrying Hines wrote of the taking of Orel, quote, Our seizure of the city took the enemy so completely by surprise that the electric trams were still working as our tanks drove in. End quote. But Hurrying Hines, being Hurrying Hines, didn't hang around to gloat, not for long. His next target, Tula to the north, on the way to Moscow. Meanwhile, the 47th Motorized Corps and the 17th and 18th Panzer Divisions were moving behind the Red Third Army, beginning the encirclement of the whole Bryansk Front. 
the RAD 6th and 290th Rifle Divisions of the, of the Bryansk Front under General Yermakov, counterattacked and asked for permission to retreat to more defensible positions. Stavka refused permission. Another encirclement was developing, just as in Bielostok, Smolensk, and elsewhere. Typhoon truly was becoming another Barbarossa. Meanwhile, a little to the north, along the Vyazma axis, the 3rd Panzer Group had reached the Dnipro River, east of the town of Chomzhikovsky, and captured two bridges over the river, intact. General Ivan Bolton, remember him? Pavlov's second-in-command, who flew through heavy enemy fire on the first day of Barbarossa to assess the situation in the south? Yes, him. He now commanded an operational group of three divisions and two tank brigades. These attempted a counterattack from the south, while the Red 30th Army counterattacked Hoth's right flank. Heavy fighting on October 4th only slowed the panzers. Farther south, Hopner's 4th Panzer Group completely destroyed the 33rd Red Army, pushed two more back, and, quote, tore a 100 to 115 kilometer or 60 to 69 mile gap between the reserve and Bryansk fronts, end quote, according to David Glantz. The Panzers were now nearly in the asthma. Take a look at the maps on the website and on the show notes to see just how close to Moscow this is. General Ivan Konev, commander of the Western Front, wrote later, quote, On 4th October, I reported to Stalin about the situation in the Western Front and about the enemy penetration of the Reserve Front, and also about the threat of a large enemy grouping reaching our forces' rear area. Stalin listened to me, however made no decision. Communications were disrupted and further conversation ceased, end quote. October 5th, Konev orders the Bolden Group of armies to block and advance on Vyazma from the north, and Rokossovsky's 16th Army to block from the south. Again, hopeless. That night, Stavka allowed the Vyazma, Reserve, and Bryansk fronts to withdraw, their retreat to be covered by the 16th Army. But like so many of Stavka's orders, these were also unrealistic and, frankly, impossible. That day, October 6, 1941, the Germans took the city of Vyazma and were beginning to close around the three retreating fronts. But that day, Stavka actually did something right. Stavka recalled Zhukov from Leningrad to organize the defense of Moscow. Apparently, Stalin's words were, organize the Western Front quickly and act. To the south, Guderian's 17th Panzer Division captured the Bryansk Front's headquarters on October 7th, just 11 kilometers south of the city itself. The front commander, Andrei Yeremenko, barely escaped with his adjutant. By the 8th, the 17th Panzer Division captured the city of Bryansk itself. The 18th Panzer Division linked up with the 2nd Army, thereby encircling three full Red Armies, including Yeremenko himself. To the northwest, the Germans encircled large numbers of the Red 24th Army east and northeast of Yelnia, the same city that Guderian had had to pull back from in July. 
By the end of October 7th, the Germans had trapped the Red 16th, 19th, 20th, and 24th Armies and part of the 32nd west of Vyazma in the so-called Vyazma Cauldron. This was when the weather changed. It had been clear and beautiful since the start of Operation Typhoon. It was what the Germans called offensive weather. But a week into the operation, the temperature started to drop. The rains came down hard. Roads became quagmires. Temperatures in some areas fell below zero Celsius, and snow fell heavy near and in Moscow. The motor-dependent Germans got bogged down. Guderian wrote, quote, Our vehicles could only advance at a snail's pace and with great wear to the engines. End quote. A soldier wrote later, quote, Tanks churned their way laboriously through the mud, which affected the maneuverability and used more of their precious fuel than intended. The whole of Russia, so it seemed to us, was one great basin of sticky mud, and we were in the middle of it. End quote. Still, the Germans managed to push on for a while at least. On October 8th, a day after closing the Vyazma Cauldron, they trapped the West Reserve and most of the Bryansk fronts also. This was great fodder for German propaganda. Newspapers in Germany declared victory to be close. Parts of the Red 3rd and 50th Armies escaped to lines 50 kilometers east. But only 10% of the 50th Army would succeed in getting back to Soviet forces. The 13th Army fought its way out of the trap, but going was slow and costly. So let's just pause a second here and take a look at the results so far. The encirclements of Vyazma and Bryansk destroyed three whole fronts, that is, groups of armies. Seven of 15 armies, 64 of 95 divisions, 11 of 15 tank brigades, 50 out of 62 artillery regiments lost to the Soviet effort. 6,000 guns and mortars and 830 tanks were destroyed. 688,000 prisoners taken and another 300,000 men killed or missing. A total of a million men taken out of the Soviet forces. 250,000, so a quarter of that number, managed to escape and get back to Soviet lines to be used again. So in Moscow, the GKO, the State Defense Ministry, started the process of moving key industries and institutions, including the general staff, out of the city to cities hundreds of kilometers east, and they ordered a state of siege. Once again, quoting from David Glantz's Operation Barbarossa. The encirclement of its forward forces struck Moscow like a thunderclap. German forces had carved a 500-kilometer breach in the front, 
and no strategic reserves were available to close it, since Zdovka had dispatched all to the southwestern axis. End quote. At this point, on October 9th, Zhukov told Stavka, the high command, that, quote, all routes to Moscow are open, and the weak protection along the Mojesk line cannot guarantee against the surprise appearance of the enemy before Moscow. That day, there was also a change in the German command. Hermann Hoth was promoted to the commander of the 17th Army fighting in Ukraine, even though he preferred to stay with his current post, the 3rd Panzer Group, and prosecute Operation Typhoon. But the German high command, actually Hitler, thought that the current commander of the 17th Army in Ukraine, uh, Karl Heinrich von Stupnagel, was too timid. They wanted Hoth. Orders are orders, so he went, to be replaced in Panzer Group 3 by Georg Heinz Reinhardt. This uh, move was followed a few days later by the promotion of Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group to be the 2nd Panzer Army. On October 10th, following the dual catastrophes of Vyazma and Bryansk, the Soviets had to do some serious reorganization. They created a new front, the Western which combined the remnants of the former Western Front and the Reserve Front. And they put Lieutenant General M.F. Lukin from the 16th Army as commander. Upon taking command, he reported to Stavka, quote, The situation of the encircled forces has worsened sharply. There are few shells, bullets are running out, and there is no food. They eat that which the population can provide and horse flesh. Medicines and dressing materials are used up. All tents and dwellings are overflowing with wounded. End quote. That day, the 3rd Panzer Group under General Reinhardt attacked northeast to destroy the northwestern front around Kalinin, a city now called Tver. Despite stiff resistance from the 22nd and 29th Armies, at the Rzhev Vyazma defense line, they captured the town of Gzatsk, which is now called Gagarin after the cosmonaut. This meant they had moved 50 kilometers in two days. Meanwhile, the 4th Army, still at full combat strength, now moved along two roads from the west and the southwest toward the Mojesk defensive line. On October 11th, encircled Red Armies tried to break out of the Vyazma cauldron, but only remnants of the 91st Rifle Division made it. The next day, October 12th, GKO, the Soviet Defense Ministry, ordered Moscow citizens to start constructing defenses around and inside Moscow. The NKVD, the state security organization, which included counterintelligence and military police, was now in charge of security in the city. A new defensive line was also set up from the city of Kalinin, or Tver north of Moscow, curving westward through Vizhev, down to Mojesk on the road from Vyazma, and back to Tula, southwest of Moscow, and the towns of Komna and Kashira. So a big circling arc. You take a look at the map, you can see more or less how that was shaped. On October 13th, the Germans announced 
quote, the enemy encircled west of Vyazma has been completely destroyed. Yeah, sounds good. But there were still soldiers there. There were still survivors fighting, and they were tying down five German divisions until the end of October. On October 14th, Reinhardt's 3rd Panzer Group occupied Kalinin, the endpoint of that great defensive arc around Moscow. Sorry about that little bump there. October 15th, Zhukov, the Supreme Command, Military Commander under Stalin, ordered the Western Front to withdraw beyond the Volga River, which flows through Kalinin or Tver. Zhukov also ordered uh, General Konev to organize a counterattack. Meanwhile, Stavka ordered the organization of a special operational group of two rifle divisions, two cavalry divisions, one tank brigade, and one motorcycle regiment to retake Kalinin. But after two weeks of heavy fighting, the best they could do was to stop the Germans from advancing any further. On October 19th, Moscow declared an official state of siege and imposed martial law. So by the end of October, German forces had reached and breached that great defensive arc, capturing the towns of Volokolamsk, Mojeist, Malo Aroslavets, and Kaluga. That brought them from 180 kilometers away from Moscow in the south to as close as 74 kilometers or less than 50 miles away. That means that if we take a look at the whole campaign so far, from late June to late October, four months, they had moved almost a thousand kilometers or 600 miles. But all the way, the Soviets were stiffening their resolve and their resistance. At the end of October, the rain, freezes, thaws, and deep mud brought Operation Typhoon to a pause. And that's a good place for this podcast to pause as well. So here we are at the end of October 1941. And I've been talking for a while, and as you can tell, my voice is starting to get a little bit too hoarse and too deep. So yes, let's take a break, have a pause, and come back in two weeks for the second part of the description of Operation Typhoon. We'll get right into November of 1941. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. Also, Thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. Your financial support goes to better audio and equipment, research, and supports for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you find that I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at scott at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>